Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. David Schwartz, who is a clinical professor at the Medical College of Georgia, the Augusta University in Georgia. He completed his medical studies in the Philippines at Far Eastern University Institute of Medicine, his Master's of Hygiene from the University of Pittsburgh, and his pathology residency at Hahnemann University in Philadelphia before completing a fellowship in GI pathology at Beth Israel Hospital. Dr. Schwartz is a practicing specialist in global maternal health and emerging infections, where he works in the areas of biomedicine, epidemiology, and medical anthropology. While a thorough review of his accomplishments and contributions to science are beyond the scope of this introduction, Dr. Schwartz is the editor of many books and the author of many articles on emerging infections, including Ebola, Zika, and now the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and has previously consulted for governmental agencies, including the CDC. Dr. Schwartz, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to talk to you today. How are you doing? I'm good, Natalie, and please call me Dave. Okay, we can do that. All right. So today is May 9th, 2020. It has been 59 days since the WHO declared this a pandemic. It is a day of note in my state of Rhode Island where Governor Raimondo's stay-at-home order lifts today, but measures to control the infection remain in place with marked limits on in-person gatherings, requirements to wear masks in most settings when out of the house, and many retail establishments still shuttered. I think she speaks for all of us when she says, and I quote, I trust in the people of Rhode Island. I am trusting that people are going to do the right thing and use good judgment, close quote. But it seems that a consensus on what to do next does not exist, even among those who take this virus very seriously. More and more, the public dialogue around COVID-19 seems to be weighing the economic implications with the potential for further sickness and further spread of this potentially lethal disease. Experts in the area of reopening our economy point to the test, trace, and isolate model, which has shown promise in some countries. However, testing is still limited in most parts of the United States, which has prevented extensive testing of non-symptomatic individuals. Among my peer group, no one I know is sure uh, what to do about their kids and schools, summer camp, and how to potentially return to work and or school while still keeping vulnerable members of our families safe. These are questions that all Americans and all people in the world are asking themselves today. Today's show will focus on one higher risk group of people, pregnant women. First, let's get to know Dr. Schwartz a little bit. Dr. Sh- or, I'm sorry, Dave. Um, Uh, Can you tell us a little bit or a lot about your background and how you came to work where you do? I'd especially like to hear how you ended up in your chosen field after studying pathology. Well, sure, Natalie. Um, You know, I I go back to the 1970s. All right. It's a good decade. Yeah. (laughs) And so uh, there's actually a group of us that still stay in touch from that era. But uh, I was originally trained in uh, anthropology. Mm -hmm. And uh, after my training in anthropology, I became interested in public health and epidemiology. And so I decided to to pursue a degree in uh, medical epidemiology. And as I worked on that, I became very interested in tropical diseases. And so I then decided to pursue additional work, and this is in the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, in, in tropical medicine. And after doing that for a while, I realized uh, I would probably need to get a medical degree, not just a graduate degree. 
And this is back in the days when there were not a lot of MD-PhD programs like there are now. And so I decided to go to medical school, which I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I went to med school in the Philippines, where I also did my research. And then did additional training for several years back and forth at what used to be called the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Washington, which unfortunately closed a few years ago. Mm-hmm. We had a separate section in there of tropical disease pathology. And so I trained there. And during residency at Hahnemann in Philly, I became very interested in um, pathological aspects of pregnancy, pregnant women, uh, severe maternal disease and maternal death, uh, and poor obstetrical outcomes such as stillbirth uh, and placental pathology. And so I spent extra time during residency studying those topics and then ended up doing a fellowship uh, up in Boston. That fellowship actually was in surgical pathology uh, with a subspecialty area in GI path. Okay. And then when I finished up, um, I was actually uh, recruited to Emory as a um, obstetrical pathologist to essentially generate uh, grant revenue for the department in terms of obstetrical pathology and perinatal pathology and emerging infections. And you have to remember at this time uh, in the late 80s, HIV was still a major problem. Right. We still weren't quite certain how HIV went from pregnant women to the fetus. Ebola had uh, recurred at this point after its initial identification in uh, DR Congo in 1976. So I started at Emory with the CDC literally next door doing maternal fetal HIV transmission and um, ended up with some grant money, with some R01 money and some other foundation money. And that's just kind of the story. <laughs> that's a very interesting story. I mean, I anthropology to public health to pathology. That's a that's a great a great journey. So um, to well, it was Natalie, and the, the yeah. interesting thing is, I'm I'm still active in all three mm-hmm. of those areas. Yeah. In in most pathologists, I know, you know, obviously I only really run into surgical pathologists most often. That's a unique journey, at least among the subset of people that I know, which is probably not enriched for people doing the kind of work you're doing. So I just find that very interesting. (laughs) It's very cool um, and necessary, obviously. Well, I'm pretty specialized. I mean, I don't think you want to send me a lymph node to exclude lymphoma. Sure. Sure. So, um, to pivot more to current events, um, when is the first time you remember hearing about COVID-19 and what was the source and how did you feel? And am I correct in assuming that because of your subspecialized knowledge that perhaps, um, especially with your public health training, did you see the current situation we're living through right now? Did you see this coming before the rest of us? Well, those are three very good questions. Um, mm-hmm. Let me answer the let me answer them in order if I can, Natalie. Absolutely. It's, it's um, your party. Do what you want. Yeah, I've been in touch with, on a collegial individual basis, mm-hmm. with senior investigators in uh, China since the beginning. 
Mm -hmm. Um, I have a very broad network, as you can imagine, being the series editor for Springer Nature of the book series, Global Maternal and Child Health. Right. And well, so I, I have a very broad network. And so I was exchanging information with investigators in Wuhan and other places really in January when this was pretty much getting into the medical literature. Yeah. Uh, we were exchanging unpublished data. Um, there, you know, I, as you probably know, I'm also an editor, mm -hmm. um, the associate, an associate editor of the Archives of Pathology. Uh, there was tremendous interchange of information here uh, on a collegial basis. I mean, I didn't feel like anyone was holding back. There was tremendous sharing. And so as I saw this go through China, I remember we were organizing at the time the International Zika Virus Meeting, which was held at the end of February in Washington, D.C., Mm -hmm. And so I suggested that we have a, actually this, this meeting was not just Zika, it was infections transmitted by Aedes aegypti. So it was mm -hmm. things like uh, dengue and Zika and others. And I suggested that we have a separate little luncheon seminar on COVID-19 because we might really start to see this here. <laughs> and so we modified at the last minute our meeting schedule in Washington to include a luncheon seminar on COVID-19. And we had four speakers, including myself. And at that point, I mean, I was very concerned personally, and I'm not the only one. I think many of us were very concerned. I've lived through many epidemics and pandemics in my life. I've worked during them going back, you know, really to the early eighties and HIV. And so I kind of had an understanding, unfortunately, of how these things work. And yeah. so I was very concerned. And I remember being at university of Pennsylvania at a meeting and in February and telling people this and, uh, some people were very concerned about my opinions. Others thought I was being uh, an alarmist. That's kind of a common pattern. Um, sorry, that I've heard that people um, who were more concerned about it early got a lot of pushback. Um, so that I don't think you're alone in that. So um, if I might just ask, since you've been through, you know, I obviously I think I was alive during the HIV pandemic, but I was. Uh, epidemic, I was a little kid. So how does the feeling you have now of going out and just being a person compare to what it was like back then? I, I feel that it was more insidious back then, perhaps less was understood about what it was and how it worked, since we know more about um, the coronavirus. But it seems more easily transmissible. Is As a healthcare practitioner, do you feel like more afraid now or just more aware? Is there a difference between those two time periods? Well, again, those are two or three different questions, Natalie. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me answer the first one. Uh, I was in New York City when HIV was first recognized. Mm -hmm. And I was in high-risk 
neighborhoods and hospitals in Manhattan. And mm -hmm. we were taking care of HIV positive patients when there was no test. Okay. We used to do a hepatitis B serology as a surrogate for HIV. Oh my goodness. Well, we knew there were a lot of people who were the same risk factors for hep right. B mm -hmm. we would see with HIV. Mm -hmm. At the time, Natalie, and I, I, I don't want to sound like grandpa, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I have an, my only child's in 11th grade. So I, yeah. I kind of am like grandpa a little. Yeah. But at the time, we really weren't even using universal precautions. You know, universal right. precautions really came in with HIV. Right. And when I was in training and we would autopsy people with HIV, I had faculty professors that wouldn't wear gloves because it, oh, interfered, with their, it interfered with their sense of touch. I have, I've heard those stories before and it absolutely makes me cringe. Oh. Well, one of my favorite faculty members, God bless him, he's, he's been dead for a number of years. He would smoke a cigar. And as we did the autopsy, he would take the cigar and put it down onto the uh, mm. metal autopsy table. Mm. Mm -hmm. There was a complete just bravado. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> But aren't you but, seeing some of that now, some bravado from some people who seem almost unaffected by the possibility that they might become infected? Of course. Of yeah. Course, of course. And that's natural. We yeah. see that in every epidemic. Yeah. But let me just go back to answering your yeah. question because I, I took a yeah. little bit of a left turn. This <laughs> does not remind me at all of the HIV pandemic. Oh, how interesting. Um, not, at, not really in any way. Okay. Okay. Because I, I, the general yeah. public was never really, I, I don't, you know, most people were never at risk for HIV. There, there was a very select mechanism of transmission and generally there were very high risk groups that, mm -hmm. you know, were so many times more at risk than were people who weren't in those risk groups. Right. Yeah. What this yeah, reminds me of, unfortunately, very, very much is uh, the West Africa Ebola outbreak, which, as you know, I was uh -huh. very involved in and edited a book dealing yeah. with it. This has so many similarities to the West African Ebola outbreak that it's it, it keeps me up at night. Um. It's very worrisome to me. And of course, after West Africa, we had several more Ebola outbreaks, one of which has just recurred again in Kivu in northeastern DR Congo, which I'm, as you know, I'm also involved in and have been with yeah. pregnant women. Yeah. And we're seeing very similar features there. Um, but again, in all of these outbreaks, you will always have people. Because people are human and people are frail and people get, become scared and they react to fear in different ways. And mm -hmm. so you will have people that just try to ignore their risk and put on a, a certain attitude. And mm -hmm. it's a completely, for anyone who's worked in an epidemic situation, it should be in a completely expected form of behavior. That's so interesting. I'm sure there are 
tomes published on the psychology of outbreaks. Well, that's in the that's in the anthropology literature. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so now that um, we've been in this situation for you know two months almost post the declaration of an actual pandemic, um, I assume you're you're understanding like all of us has evolved. Has there any been anything about the way that this has sort of unfolded in the United States that has surprised you or more largely anything about how it's unfolded in the world that's really surprised you given your experience with, with outbreaks? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, when, when I was working with the situation in China and dealing with my colleagues and publishing on that. And as you can probably imagine, I'm very active reviewing manuscripts. As a reviewer, I probably get three to four manuscripts dealing with COVID and pregnancy a day asking me to review these manuscripts. Yeah. It's over. In fact, I just got one before we came on from, from Lancet. I mean, it's overwhelming. So yeah. In my position, I'm very well aware of what's in progress and what's maybe coming out in the field of maternal and perinatal COVID-19, potentially weeks or more before it's published. Mm -hmm. With China, we never really saw, based on medical literature, any significant poor maternal or perinatal outcomes. Yeah. Uh, there was one, you know, as you again probably know, you have my CV. I have a special interest in severe maternal disease and maternal death. We had one obstetric near miss case in Wuhan that was reported. All right, do you know what an obstetric near miss is, Natalie? I can intuit, but I'm sure there's a more refined definition. So feel free well, to share that. Yeah. <laughs> There actually isn't. There's a WHO definition. Okay. But an obstetric near miss is a pregnant woman who almost dies. Sure. But doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, from an epidemiological standpoint, these are identical processes. And, and mm -hmm. as you know, as a pathologist, why someone dies of a severe disease and why someone doesn't sometimes is, is a mystery to us. Mm-hmm. But with the exception of that one obstetric near miss, in all of these cases that were reported from China, moms did well. Right. And with some exceptions, babies did well. And there were right. no confirmed maternal, fetal, intrauterine and transmission cases reported. Right. Once this spread to Europe and then to the United States, at least the eastern United States, things started to look different we started to see more reports of severe maternal disease. We started to see cases of more severe perinatal disease. Uh, I'm personally working with three groups in Iran looking mm -hmm. at this because Iran has been terribly affected by COVID-19. Yes. Yeah. Also, of course, because of political considerations, sanctions, uh, they're very limited in their ability to respond to it. Right. And so we started to see maternal deaths for the first time occurring in Iran. 
Right. Uh, I think seven of those have just been reported. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an additional couple that I'm looking at. Um, and we're starting to see early neonatal positivity uh, for SARS-CoV-2. So these were not things that we were seeing coming out of the Chinese studies. So that surprised me. I always expected, frankly, there to be a maternal death Uh or more because we saw that with the two other pathogenic coronaviruses that occurred with right. SARS in 2002, 2003, and with MERS. Right. Right. And what do you think the reason for that change is between the Chinese reporting and the what happened there and what's happening in places like Iran and Europe? You know, I've been asked that so many times. You know, Iranian, <laughs> Iranian physicians. Have you ever worked with an Iranian-trained physician? I have, actually. Okay. They're very well-trained. Yes, Um, You know, I've worked all over the world and certainly from a geographic perspective, you know, you do see variation. So you've got very, very good doctors and by and large, very good facilities in Iran. I've been asked that question many times now, and I don't know the answer. It's possible that we're seeing viral strain differences. Yes, I saw some data on that, although... It doesn't seem that there's a consensus, but it does seem like there might be different strains in different places. That's right. 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 And then I guess the other possibility is that some of the complications were underreported initially, perhaps. That could be. Maybe, so we don't want to think about that, but I I mean it's it's in the differential, right? As I'm a pathologist, it would be Sure. You always you know, as an epidemiologist, we always worry about surveillance issues. And right. I can tell you firsthand from, you know, having been in multiple pandemics and epidemics, such as the more recent Ebola viruses uh, in Africa. I mean, in West Africa, we weren't even ordering pregnancy tests on women when they came in. Hmm. If you're in a pandemic situation like that, it's very much like being in war. I see. And if you've ever seen war movies which probably I would guess, Natalie, is not your forte. You know, ever since I had children, I don't like watching anything that doesn't end with happy endings. Right. So, you know, that's, that's like right. a whole, that's probably an anthropologic study right there. But I don't know. Not well, not recently, no. Well, we can so, talk about yeah. that another time. But Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, if you ever watch war movies or you ever talk to people who have had the experience of being in combat, nothing ever seems to go right. Nobody right. knows what's going on around them. Right. Um, you know, everybody becomes somewhat isolated from one another. It's, it's, it's not like you would think it would be. It's not this highly organized uh, no. situation. Right. Everyone's it's, just trying to get by. So I guess what you're saying is that it's a possibility that pregnant women who either don't know that they're pregnant or the people treating them don't know that they're pregnant could be dying at higher rates in places where they're not being tested to see if they're pregnant. And that could actually be hidden in the data somehow. Right. That's a possibility. I think that that's probably true, but you know, generally what we're seeing in the literature are women in their third trimester. 
Right. Who would not need a pregnancy test, right? right. But but it's possible that perhaps first and second trimester folks are not getting picked up because they're in a like low resource situation by, by virtue of the place that they live in or just the place that they live in has run out of resources. So that, that, that would be correct too. So again, we also have to look at host factors. Mm -hmm. And, And so, you know, we see differences as an anthropologist, I can tell you from a uh, bioanthropological standpoint, uh, you can have differences between different ethnic populations and their susceptibility and manifestations of disease, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I just don't know why we did not see this greater prevalence of poor maternal and uh, perinatal outcomes in the Chinese studies as we're seeing. Right. Uh, for instance, you've seen that article, the articles from New York City published right. by the Columbia uh, faculty um, looking at obstetric near misses uh, in, um, in Columbia hospitals, uh, cardiomyopathies, um, yeah, I, right. I, I just don't know. We don't. It'll be very interesting to see what comes out of Italy, right? Especially Lombardy, because they had such an enormous concentration of infection there. But yes. you know, what's interesting, and I have an article coming out on this this week in Clinical Infectious Diseases. Um, we now have national registries of pregnant women with COVID nineteen in many countries. And these registries are registering literally hundreds upon hundreds of pregnant women and following them uh, as well as their babies. So we have registries in Great Britain. We have registries in France, uh, in Italy, at least in Lombardy. We have one in the United States that based, it's based in San Francisco at UCSF. Um, okay. Canada has one. The Netherlands has one. And so when these studies start to report the results, um, one of which I've actually just reviewed for publication, these hundreds of women Uh with COVID-19, I think we're going to learn a lot more about the natural history of this disease. That's really exciting. My other question is, I know um, they've recommended universal screening of pregnant women, at least when they come to deliver for COVID-19 in the United States. And I think that's sort of happening now as the testing becomes more available. Do you happen to know in China, were they testing all pregnant women for COVID or only symptomatic pregnant women? That's a very good question, Natalie. Because I, I wonder if I think the... I knew that at one time and I can't I work with so many different countries. Exactly. I'm not sure I yeah. remember that now. It seems like it would skew your data one way or another if you were only testing people with symptoms, because now we know so many patients don't have symptoms, and that includes pregnant women, as far as I know. So, That's right. um, um, so your work, how has it changed during this time since the social distancing began? Although you're in Georgia, so it seems like you all have relaxed a little bit. So, well. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's essentially, (laughs) let's just ignore it and it'll go away. Um, Georgia, our deaths have been increasing. Yeah. And uh, I think most of us, of course, the CDC is here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Uh, Emory and the Rollins School of Public Health is here. 
the Carter Center is here. This is the capital of public health in the world. Mm-hmm. And so for those of us who work in that area, I don't think there's any disagreement that this was premature. You're not relaxed is what you're saying. That's good. Well, I'm not leaving the house for anything yeah, okay. except to go to work. Okay. No, uh, we're still mm-hmm. doing uh, online school. And you have to also remember that, you know, Atlanta is very different than the rest of Georgia. Right. So uh, you have political considerations, you have uh, ethnic considerations, you have academic considerations. So uh, Atlantans, even though this city is open, more or less, uh, they're, for the most part, not leaving their houses. And still, most businesses are not open here in Atlanta. I can't speak for what goes on in rural Georgia or other cities. Right. Right. It's 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 interesting to me, the the push and pull between official relaxation of policies versus like I, what I said in the introduction, what I'm hearing from my peer group. People aren't confident about going into stores or having play dates and doing all these things that we were doing before. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that changes with time. Um, do you think that the practice of medicine will change as a result of COVID-19? Oh, clearly. In fact, we just published an article two articles or are coming out this week. I saw the galley proofs in anthropology journals. Mm-hmm. And what we're looking at in those articles, which I co-authored with uh, two medical anthropologists, Kim Gutshaw from Williams and uh, Robbie Davis Floyd from U Texas. We're looking at how birth care will change in the United States. Oh, Interesting. Oh, it's fascinating. I mean, if you, this is really probably one of the hottest topics in terms of how care is changing. And it really deals to a certain degree with the fact that, you know, we have medicalized uh, pregnancy here in the United States. Right. I work in Guadalajara, I work with indigenous women in Central America with the Mayans. Uh, and other indigenous groups in Guatemala and Honduras and with indigenous groups in Mexico where we have um, indigenous midwives and where uh, pregnancy has not been medicalized. Here, of course, we've had almost complete medicalization of pregnancy. But when the hospitals become potential sources of infection. Right. Uh, Very similar to, are you familiar with Dr. Semmelweis in medical history? It sounds familiar. I feel like I'm failing. The Hungarian physician. Septic guy. That's right. Corporal sepsis. Women, pregnant women uh, or women in general would go into the hospital and they would acquire life-threatening infections. Essentially, group A strip. And right. um, so hospitals became centers of infection back then. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit like what we're seeing now. You have healthcare workers who are being severely affected and infected as right. they did in SARS and MERS and as they did in Ebola. Right. And so people are hesitant to go into hospitals as they were in the West Africa 
uh, epidemic. And so they're trying to take care of themselves at home and people are dying at home of preventable conditions. Right. Yeah. It's and another the field of pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, we may have women who are scared to go in to a hospital for care and they may, they may be abrupting at home and dying. We don't know all this mm -hmm. yet. Right. Yeah. I, I think about that in the, the sort of virtualization of medicine in terms of education, you see that the trade-offs are relatively, you know, safe for everyone. But when you're talking about prenatal care, sort of taking that onto a virtual platform um, and also decentralizing it as people sort of cope with their fears of interacting with the healthcare system. I agree. I right. didn't think about that particularly going forward for pregnant women, but and, that is. And, I mean, and pregnant women are not allowed to have companionship when they go into the hospitals now for the most part and deliver. Right. And so their significant others or their family members are restricted from seeing them. They have to deliver by themselves in many cases. Yeah, that is, that is not something that one should have to go through on one's own, I think. That's <laughs> right. You're, yeah. you're not, we've spent years promoting skin to skin contact following yeah. delivery. And now that's forbidden. These babies are being rushed right off to isolates in many cases. Wow. Uh, mm -hmm. Midwives cannot now go into the hospital and deliver the babies as they could earlier in some cases. Mm -hmm. So even in just this little area of birth care, there have been tremendous changes. That's very once interesting. Once you extend this, you know, once you extend this out to, uh, to the greater community and non-pregnant patients and pediatricians and geriatricians, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be tremendous changes. Right, right. I've talked previously about patients not coming in for cancer screenings. And I saw, um, I, I think it was a news article, so it wasn't peer reviewed about um, fewer vaccinations being given in the month of March for right. children, preventative right. care. So yeah, I think it's going to sort of ripple out for a year. And especially if it takes us some time to get a vaccine and it's a while before people feel comfortable again. We'll just be dealing with this for a long, long time. For, um, we don't, yeah. Natalie. We don't even know if we'll have a, an effective vaccine. I know. I, I tend to uh, prefer the glass half full model, um, at least for the time being, for my own mental health. But I fully acknowledge that, um, especially with coronaviruses in impartial, it, it's it could be a problem. We're going to talk more about vaccines in just a moment. But I usually like to ask people at this time if. Um, they have increased stress. I, I guess I can just assume that the answer to that question is yes for everyone. I should stop asking that. But how do you deal with increased stress? You said you're, work, you're staying home unless you're going to work. Um, have your habits changed in terms of stress modification? You know, Natalie, I, I don't really feel like I have increased stress. Oh, interesting, because you're sort of um, desensitized maybe a little bit more than the rest of us. You've seen pandemics before that's good so that's what i need to do well, yeah. have more life experience <laughs> yeah i mean i yeah. you know i mean there, there's many reasons i mean i'm a fairly spiritual individual mm -hmm. i guess you could say i'm a religious individual mm -hmm. um i uh i've been through this before uh i'm i'm a i'm a military veteran uh, I'm a war veteran. Um, 
<laughs> I went through pathology residency training. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you saw people do autopsies without gloves on. You survived that. Yeah, I know. Well, that's good to know. That's but, good to know that there are some of us out there who are feeling. Also, you tend, you seem to stay very busy, so I imagine that helps. Well, that's it. Bit. What I, what I'm dealing with is exhaustion. Yeah, I'm being yeah. asked to do. I I had to drop a lot of other things. I was interested in, I, I'm supposed to be editing a special issue of a journal coming out on uh, Zika virus in Latin America. Mm -hmm. I'm supposed to be editing uh, a special issue of a journal on the placenta and tropical diseases. I have two books in preparation uh, that I had to, one of which I had to put on hold dealing with hepatitis E in pregnancy. I, I've had to drop these things that I have responsibility for to concentrate on COVID, looking at COVID-19. Yeah. And frankly, I've never had to, I mean, I've never had to review this many manuscripts of a, of a major nature for major journals. Yeah. My, you know, one of my, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I mean, reviewing these manuscripts in an outbreak like this is of such importance. We're mm -hmm. seeing on the order of a thousand new articles appearing in the peer reviewed literature every week. Mm. Uh, yeah. And as you know, there's a huge number of preprints that are available that have not even been pre peer reviewed yet. Yeah. So just yeah, trying, that, yeah. trying to keep up with this on a yeah. literally hourly basis. And trying to do my own research, do my own writing, mentor people overseas, and I get patient consults from other physicians um, dealing with COVID-19, and review these manuscripts, it, 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 and take care of my family. It is just overwhelming. Yeah. Um, one of my prior guests described um, research and research funding as experiencing something he called COVIDization. So I feel like your whole life has experienced, uh, co you've been COVIDized, like your <laughs> your time and your focus have just been ripped away from everything else, whether you want it or not. And it sounds like you also feel somewhat of a calling to do that, to try to get these, you know, the quality studies that you find am amongst what you're sent to help patients. So Thank you for doing that. And uh, oh, that's my I pleasure. I, I can tell. Yeah, you. I hope you get some sleep sometime. <laughs> well, I, I never breath, slept yeah. much anyway, to be honest with you. <laughs> <That's handy. laughs> but I, I'll tell you a phenomenon I'm seeing that reminds me of HIV and so many other things. And it's a pathology issue because, you know, I I'm, I'm, do a lot of non pathology work, as, as you probably know. But what I'm seeing from the pathology standpoint, is that people are looking at pathology specimens and from patients who have some association with COVID-19 and they're maybe looking a little too hard to find abnormalities. <laughs> Does that make sense? I totally know what you mean yes and <laughs> we want to we want to find something to help right. i think so, you know yeah. it, it's natural pathologists want to find something yeah yeah and i'm seeing these i saw this in zika i saw mm -hmm. this so many times in zika i saw it 
with Ebola to a lesser extent because we didn't have a lot of pathology specimens from Ebola for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw it tremendously during HIV. Right. Um, and I'm seeing it now. Now that we're getting pathology specimens to look at, I'm seeing it with with autopsy and surgical pathology. Yeah. And I'm having yeah. to make negative recommendations on, on some of this, unfortunately. Just pump the brake. Just pump the brakes a little bit. So, yeah. That well, it helpful. is. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. what we do is, as surgical pathologists is so important in emerging mm -hmm. infections. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, I mean, we can certainly guide a lot of the clinical uh, care of patients in, an, in a new emerging infection based on what we see pathologically. Yes, yes. We so, are the we're we're the ones with the answers a lot of the times. That's so. right. So we have to be very careful when we ascribe a microscopic right. finding to this virus. Yes. We just need because the clinicians aren't able to judge that for themselves for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we just really need to take a step back and make sure that what we're seeing and saying is being caused by COVID, if we are saying that is is a confident opinion right i agree um so to pivot more specifically to your research um you had an article in viruses in february 2020 where you talked about pneumonia in pregnant women can oh. you talk a little bit about what we know about pneumonia especially viral pneumonia in pregnancy sure you know that article i feel like i wrote that article three years ago <laughs> yeah. Welcome to, someone said, uh, can you believe 2020 that uh, an entire year passed during the month of March? And I was like, well, it felt like more like a decade to me, but yeah, it's, it's only, it's only May. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, pneumonia is, is a fairly common thing in pregnancy. If we're looking at non-obstetrical uh, uh, conditions, mm -hmm. um, if we look, you know, being having an interest like I do in maternal death and editing a series of books on it, um, if we look at indirect causes of maternal death, do you know the difference between a direct and an indirect cause of maternal death, Natalie? No, not the technical definition. Like okay. I said, I could probably intuit. Well, but... you know, direct causes of maternal death are usually obstetrical conditions. Okay. So... Have you ever seen a case of maternal death? I have, unfortunately. Yeah. You have? Yeah. And most pathologists have not. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if a woman dies of preeclampsia or help syndrome. Or, or abruption. Or yeah, postpartum hemorrhage. Necrotizing mm -hmm. endomyometritis or this or that. These are mm -hmm. all considered, or thrombosis, these are considered direct, direct causes of maternal death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So indirect causes of maternal death would be women who may die of, of cancer while they're pregnant or trauma. They're hit, mm -hmm. they're hit by a car. Pneumonia is the third leading indirect cause of maternal death. Mm -hmm. And in general, viral pneumonia tends to have a poorer prognostic outcome than does bacterial pneumonia in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. 
where we tend to see our mnemonic causes of maternal death uh, just in terms of statistics would be with pandemics. Mm -hmm. And of course, what organism is the first one to pop into your mind, Natalie? For pneumonia? Mm -hmm. During a pandemic. Influenza pops into my head, but that's right. And, <laughs> I don't know. That's and you'd be answer. absolutely correct. You know, H1N1, uh, you know, any of these pandemics we've had of influenza have had uh, disproportionate numbers of pregnant women succumbing to the uh, infection. Mm-hmm. And this, th- these data go back, you know, to the great influenza pandemic of what was that, 1917, 1918? Right. Yeah. It feels like when I was born at this point, but um, <laughs> relax, you're not that old. <laughs> I have a birthday next week. <laughs> <laughs> Happy almost birthday. Thank you. Yeah. 67. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, viral pneumonias tend to be worse in pregnant women. There are normal changes that occur in pregnancy uh, dealing with. Uh, the innate immune system of a pregnant woman with um, uh, conditions related to the lungs and the heart, with cardiac output, with stroke volume, um, mm-hmm. with uh, expansion of the lungs during pregnancy. There's just so many issues that can make a pregnant woman more susceptible to a uh, viral uh, respiratory agent, and then make them have more predisposed to having a worse outcome. Okay. So most of the currently available literature relating to SARS-CoV-2, like we talked about this earlier, that um, suggested at least the early literature that transmission to the fetus was not occurring, um, which fits the pattern that was most commonly observed with things like SARS and MERS, which are related viruses. Um, This, of course, is opposed to other recent pandemics such as Zika, which resulted in mild maternal disease and sort of catastrophic fetal complications, Um, although I might be using that word incorrectly. Um, However, complication rates in pregnant women with COVID have been reported. We started talking about this. Um, What is known at this moment? How would you say on, you know, May 9th, um, what are... What do we know about how this is affecting pregnant women and their babies? Do you think that that early reporting is changing in terms of what pregnant women are being told? Or do you think we're still too early to know more? Well, it depends what time on May 9th you're talking about. Perfect. Uh, I mean, this, you know, back in the Zika days uh, in 2016, I think you I think you mentioned you read some of the articles I published on Zika in the Archives of Pathology. We, I edited that special Zika issue back then in January. I think I was pregnant when I read that article. Obviously, oh I was not traveling, <laughs> but I was I was glued to that stuff. I was, I was reading it as fast as I could find it. Yeah, it was very it was a very frightening time to be pregnant. Um, yeah, but um, you know this this is of course, very different. Um, he, I'm just trying to think how to explain this. Ask me the question again, Natalie. So I'm just wondering, 
I mean, I know at, at least initially, and I've talked about information and how I consume information when this pandemic first started, I was consuming everything. And obviously that's impossible now for not only for my mental health, but also because there's too much to read. But when the data was first coming out about pregnancy, like we said, the re- the reports from China were that it wasn't being transmitted to the fetus and that overall moms were doing okay. Moms were delivering okay. We weren't seeing complications. Do you think that we know enough now about how that might not be the case in all pregnancies, that that's becoming common knowledge that's conveyed to pregnant women that obstetricians are telling their patients? Or do you think we're still erring on the side of it's probably fine, you're probably going to be okay if you get SARS-CoV-2 while you're pregnant? Well, Natalie, again, those are a couple different questions. (laughs) I like to do that to you. Sorry. I know. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I, I don't know what obstetricians. I there's there's a lot of obstetricians. I yes, don't exactly. know what they're all telling their patients, frankly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I certainly know what the obstetrical organizations are telling obstetricians. Things like ACOG, uh-huh. the Royal College in Great Britain, the uh, OBGYN. Organization in Canada, which I, I think gives tremendous information, and of course the CDC, which you know is our foremost uh, epidemiological institute in the world. Uh, on an individual basis, I don't know what pregnant women are being told. I am contacted by some and OBs yeah. as well. Oh yeah, I get mm-hmm. consults. You know, women, pregnant women go online and they read articles and my email is on there <laughs> or, you know, correspondence. And so, sure. I, yeah, sure. I, I, pregnant I, women have a lot to think about. So, yeah, they want information I, for sure. Yeah. Um, what I think at this point, and if I just talk about maternal fetal before I talk, talk about mom's health, we are now beginning to see reports, uh, including uh, unpublished reports uh, that I have reviewed that will be coming out shortly, reports that have just been published, and uh, my own experience with my colleagues in Iran looking at neonates. Um, We are seeing more and more neonates testing positive for mm-hmm. SARS-CoV-2 at some point following delivery. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. And I was going to mention to you earlier when you were looking at that that old uh, archives issue from 2017 I did on Zika, mm-hmm. one article I wrote in there talked about pregnancy and Zika virus. What do we think? What do we know? And what do we think we know? Exactly. And that's a very common expression we use at the CDC. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what do we know? We know that newborns are being delivered and sometime shortly after birth, sometimes within 12 hours, sometimes within 24 hours, they're testing positive for the virus. For RNA. For PCR. Right. And generally, mm-hmm. and this is something that bothers me in some way, generally this is via a nasopharyngeal swab. Right. And I'm trying to kind of 
as an obstetrical pathologist, trying to grasp the significance of that, mm-hmm. which is probably for probably for a commentary in a journal. Right. Um, but what we also know is that, you know, some of these babies have negative placentas when they're tested. Some of them um, have other negative specimens. And then a few babies, when they're born, have elevations, allegedly, of this virus-specific IgM antibodies. I I saw those reports of IgM positivity. That's pretty suspicious, huh? Well, it is suspicious. One of the problems is um, that, you know, laboratories, I'm not a laboratory person. My, mm-hmm. my wife is the laboratory person at CDC. Mm-hmm. I'm not. But, you know, some labs are better than others, frankly. Right. Right. Some teachers are better than others. Some doctors are better than others. And some labs are better than others. And, you know, we get into quality assurance issues and contamination issues, mm-hmm. especially with things like PCR. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's hard for me to really know at this point with these isolated cases, how reliable these data are. Yeah, that's true. Um, And time will tell. Yeah. And that, that those big cohorts of patients you were talking about the registries, that'll probably be helpful, bigger numbers and more controlled testing. So, well, we'll it will be if in fact they're doing these sorts of laboratory tests on the babies. Right. Fingers crossed. What it seems to be, what it seems like is at this point, just to cut to the chase, we may be seeing transplacental transmission. You know, there's three mechanisms of vertical transmission. And unfortunately, sometimes some scientists and authors use the term vertical transmission incorrectly. Uh I've seen in the literature that vertical transmission is being used as a synonym for intrauterine transmission, and it's not. All vertical transmission means is mother to infant. Right. And so it can occur in the intrauterine environment via two mechanisms, ascending infection and maternal hematogenous infection. It can occur during delivery, peripartum through delivery through an infected birth canal, like you would see with herpes virus. And it can occur postpartum after the baby's delivered, either via maternal breast milk or skin-to-skin contact uh, or contaminative transmission, transmission from the mother coughing or just even breathing on the baby from an infected hospital staff member or from another patient. Right. So in terms of intrauterine transmission, which might be transplacental transmission, we may be seeing that. Uh, I'm working on an article right now, which will be submitted fairly shortly, that essentially asks the question, how will we know when a fetus has been infected via transplacental transmission? And this is the question we had with Zika. 
this is the question we had with HIV. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, there's various ways to do that. Unfortunately, postpartum testing doesn't really help you too much there. It might No, it really opens up your differential. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you certainly yeah. can be suspicious for it, but how do you know right. that it's it, it's just yeah. hard to know. And yeah. So I, I guess on that issue as a pathologist, I come down to pathology. Um I remember I was on the team where we identified where the Zika virus was in the placenta of transmitting moms. And we published that in the archives of OBGYN as well as the archives of pathology back at the end of 16, early 17. And so we were able to use probes to clearly identify in the placentas of infected infants from infected mothers Zika virus within uh, Hofbauer cells within chorionic villus macrophages. It was unequivocal. Right. So to me, that is probably one of the best methods. Right. For demonstrating true intrauterine transmission. And so what is being seen? There have been some studies about placentas with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Are there any common patterns that are emerging or do you think we still don't know enough yet? Well, there have been very few. Uh, as far mm -hmm. as I know, there have only been two reports of actual placental pathology. Mm -hmm. There were four placentas reported from Wuhan, mm -hmm. which, in my opinion, only showed nonspecific changes, changes of maternal vascular malperfusion. Right. Um, and those infants were uninfected, by the way. <laughs> Oh, and mom was, but the babies weren't. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I'm yeah. not sure you're going to learn a lot from looking at uninfected placentas from uninfected neonates. <laughs> I see. Yeah. So that's still TBD. That's good. We'll right. still there, keep there, our there, eye on that. Yeah. There was yeah. an article that came out from uh, actually from some colleagues of mine um, who I knew from Zika, uh, Dr. Baud in, in Switzerland. I saw that. Yeah, there's a one article, but I looked at the photos and I didn't think it was a very specific, at least specific in the mind of someone who isn't currently doing placenta. But it, it, if you showed me that, I wouldn't be able to immediately say like, oh, that's a, well, a SARS-CoV-2 placenta. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And I think yeah. it was very, yeah. I think it was great that David published that with right. his colleagues. Um, the, the, to me, the way they took the sample reminded me of how we were doing things back in the AIDS era that confused mm -hmm. us. In other words, when you look at placental tissue, Natalie, as you know, it's a mixture of maternal and fetal cells. Uh, the chorionic villi, which are fetal in origin, are surrounded by the intervillous space, which contains maternal cells, maternal blood. So if you take a scalpel and you mm -hmm. cut out a piece of placenta, you have both maternal blood and yeah. fetal tissue in that sample. Yeah, that's a hard one to do unless you do some sort of laser capturing on the slide and then... Well, there's no, well, there's no slide because what they did yeah. was they did PCR 
mm-hmm. on that tissue and found that there was virus. Right, right. Now, I, I think that's a that's a great piece of information to know, but right. that may only be that may only Mom. be virus mm-hmm. in the maternal bloodstream, right? That they're picking up because we yeah, know we, we know that patients with COVID nineteen can be viremic, right? Yes. And so, what you really then need to do is to submit sections. And mm-hmm. then on those sections, do some sort of immunohistochemical or nucleic acid probe-based method where right. you can then localize right. the COVID-19 yeah. or the SARS-CoV-2 virus to right. specific compartments and cell types within the placenta, which is what we did with Zika. Right. I'm sure someone's hard at work on that right now, hopefully I, developing the antibodies. I am I sure they're doing that right now. Sure. I have no yeah. doubt. Awesome. Great. Um, so you talk in some detail about the problems with developing a vaccine for coronaviruses and focus on further problems faced, including in, um, pregnant women being included in study designs. Um, can you talk about the, not just with, if you want to talk about the other viruses as well, but the problems with developing vaccines, which include pregnant women? Well, sure. I mean, you read... All those articles I wrote on that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, historically, pregnant women have not been included, not just in vaccine trials, but also in uh, drug trials. Right. For obvious reasons, right? For, I mean... for intuitive reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is changing. There's pressure from some of us to induce change along those lines. Mm-hmm. But you also have the realities of, you know, liability. Yeah. Um, and not just, you know, fiscal liability, but also biological liability. Um, you know, pregnancy is such a special condition. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, we went through this with Ebola and a group of us worked and worked and worked to try to get uh, policies changed to permit pregnant women to be included in the Ebola vaccine testing and ultimately its implementation. And this began at the end of the West Africa Ebola outbreak, where we were doing uh, phase three trials, phase two and phase three trials, where pregnant women were excluded. Although some did sneak in <laughs> by accident. Right. Apparently, that article just came out recently. They were fine. Okay. Well, good. But also, then, when we had subsequent outbreaks in uh, Equator province, which was a smaller outbreak, where we started the ring vaccination uh, work and pregnant women were excluded. And then when Kivu hit, which is the second largest Ebola outbreak in history, pregnant women were excluded. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think, based on pressure from a number of us who wrote articles about this, uh, policy was changed uh, to include vaccination of pregnant women. Unfortunately, in the meantime, you know, Ebola is a pretty nasty disease. 
There have only mm-hmm. been two or three babies who have ever survived in history that have been infected. And, and not to mention the, the mothers that's as right. well, the maternal mortality, you say it approaches 90% in some studies or some situations. Well, probably. in the early studies, yeah. it did, yes, right. not in the later right. studies. And so, yeah. I mean, while while this vaccine, which is, you know, has a very, very high efficacy in the high 90% range, was being withheld from pregnant women, they became infected and died. Yeah, yeah. And so this is very serious stuff. And if eventually we do get a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2, obviously there's going to have to be billions of doses of it prepared. Right. And you're going to get into distribution issues. And so once this develops, there's obviously going to have to be prioritization of distribution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the question will become, it'll become a policy issue as this hopefully efficacious vaccine first starts to come out, where will it go and who will be the first to receive it? Right. Prioritization and prioritization. Yeah, that'll be hard. And it's going to be a very highly political issue um, as vaccination issues, unfortunately, often are. Yes. Geopolitical, too, as well. I've heard arguments about, you know, which country comes first. If one country makes it, are they going to share it with the world? Or uh, it's just um, right now I'm trying to focus on positive, the positive thoughts of let's just get this thing done and test it, make sure it's safe. Um, and then we'll maybe cross that bridge, but you're probably right. We should probably be right. thinking about them simultaneously. Well, it's a hard, you know, I, I don't want to be political. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm, uh, the section editor on emerging infections for the journal vaccines. And, you know, in my position there as a section editor, uh, for emerging infections, one of the issues that comes up is, is who will make these decisions. Mm-hmm. Normally, it would have, I thought, would have been World Health Organization. They were involved in making these decisions with the Ebola vaccine. Right. Along with the government, uh, the Department of Public Health in the Congo. But because we have the United States under the current leadership has isolated itself from World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we've actually not even a participating member now on this uh, vaccine panel that other mm-hmm. countries are members of. You probably have heard about that. We were, yeah, I try. Our, our government withdrew from this very recently, so we're not even a member of that vaccine panel. Um, and just based on how materials have been distributed so far in terms of being centralized to a certain degree through the government, through the White House, um, I find it somewhat worrisome that when this vaccine, if it does occur, is distributed, exactly what the national priorities will be. Right. 
Right. Or will um, it become a, a function of... Will some I'm, states be more eligible for it than others because of politics? Exactly. Or will it come down to a a question of wealth? Will it be states who can afford to pay? That's right. Um, it's It's very unnerving. And I've found the decentralization of our response nationally without getting too political to be very concerning, especially as a healthcare worker, not that I'm treating patients, but just the idea that there's not... Uh, one body, I'm not saying it has to be the, you know, executive branch or even the White House, kind of overseeing things and just looking as a stepping back and looking at the country and saying, okay, these places need this and this place needs that and just sort of coordinating. And um, it seems to me that's going to be mandatory for vaccine distribution and prioritization. And I mean, we do it every fall with the flu vaccine. We say these, these populations need vaccination, absolutely mandatory. I know every time I was pregnant, they were calling me, you know, the second the vaccine was ready, that right. kind of thing. So um, yeah, that'll be interesting to see as it plays out. And I know a lot of people are saying we need to start thinking about production and, oh man, there's so much to think about these days. Well, it's hard. There wrap is, our heads I mean, from my standpoint, yeah. it should, these decisions should be made by the Center now. for Disease Control. Amen. We have yeah. tremendous experience there at the CDC. Yeah with yeah. uh with vac- vaccine yeah. development and distribution and yeah um the cdc seems to have taken a secondary role here for some reason i think well, who that- should be highly involved but i don't think we're involved with who anymore so it's a little worrisome for me as a public health specialist yeah yeah well maybe we can um, put it out into the world that that could change, and those two organizations could maybe climb back into the front seat and help uh, navigate us. That would be lovely. Um, I wanted to touch on one more topic, although we've talked for quite a while. We don't. Um, I just didn't want to, you know, kind of stop recording with you before we talked about underlying inequalities. And um, I, I assume that your experience around the world has made you someone who is cognizant of this, but underlying inequalities regarding access to medical care and oh. pre-existing comorbidities are being, I think, sort of unmasked by this pandemic. I think healthcare providers, we've maybe always known that these were there, but perhaps the general public just didn't have the headspace or a reason to think about them. But higher rates of complications and deaths are being noted in minorities here in the United States. I know even in Rhode Island, I was reading an article this morning about how the Hispanic population here is being infected at a much higher rate than they are represented in our population. So as this pandemic spreads across the United States and the world, do you think that higher rates of morbidity and mortality are going to continue to be unmasked, not just here, but in other countries? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good question. I mean, you know, Natalie, I mean, if, if you look if you look at maternal death, maternal yes. death, what we call maternal mortality ratios, are you familiar with those MMRs? Not as not as an actual term, no. Mm-hmm. It's the number of pregnant women who die per so many deliveries in a country. Okay. And, you know, from a policy standpoint, these maternal mortality ratios, you know, the United States is terrible. As you know, we're the only, quote, developed country mm-hmm. where that has been increasing. 
you know, we're, we're know. in there with one or well, there's four countries where it's been increasing. And I think the other two or three are in sub-Saharan Africa. And then there's the United States. Maternal Ugh. mortality ratios have are used as surrogate markers for for the developmental status of a country. So okay. If, if, that makes- if you look at the World Bank, if you look at United Nations agencies, at UNICEF, uh, uh, at, at other international organizations, when they want to know how developed, what well, something that we call the Human Development Index or the HDI, how developed a country is, one of the first metrics that they look at is their maternal death rate. Because it's a very good marker in mm-hmm. so many ways for looking at the status of a country's development. Another one, of course, would be infant mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, the United States is terrible. Yeah. Um, then within the United States, if you look at ethnic groups, or if you want to use the term racial groups, um, African-American women have three times the relative risk of dying from being pregnant as do uh, Caucasian women. Mm -hmm. They are 300% more likely to die because they're pregnant. Yeah, it makes a lump yeah, is, these are not new data. This is not from COVID or from it's just not something I don't think I'll ever get used to. Yes. So, you know, right off the bat, you know, we know that this disparity exists. And there's mm-hmm. there's a multitude of reasons for it, some of which are clearer than others. And certainly a pandemic will unmask those. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But for those of us who work in public health, this is, I mean, this is nothing new. It's not news to you. It's just, uh, I think what it's going to do, though, is it's going to take those issues that maybe some people, like I said, just don't have the headspace to to think about on a daily basis. It's going to push them to the front page. I don't think it's something that we can ignore. So, Well, Natalie, I hope you're right. The question is, does anyone care? That is a good question for so many things that we've talked about today. I mean, Natalie, did did anyone in the United States care about the Ebola epidemic in Kivu? Most people I talk to aren't even aware that this has been going on, and it's the second largest Ebola outbreak in history. That's probably another one for your um, medical anthropology colleagues and you to dig into the psychology. I am so interested in the psychology and how not only um, sort of tying into tying COVID and, and the Kivu outbreak together that you're talking about, it even seems to me like most people I talk to when I ask them the question when they first heard about this SARS-CoV-2 virus, COVID-19, whatever we were calling it at the time, most people thought that's happening over there and it's not going to happen here. You know, most that's people right. thought it's someplace else. It's not going to come here. I'm fine because we're in America. It's not happening here. And of course, now we know the virus was probably circulating in the United States in January. We didn't know it then, but I wonder if we had had early testing and we had known that the virus was here in January in more significant numbers than we knew, maybe that would have changed people's minds. Maybe people would have taken it more seriously. Certainly Ebola was on the front pages. I don't remember the year, but when those nurses got it 
um, in the United States and Texas, and there were cases being treated here in the United States, then everyone was paying attention. Yeah, that know? was actually so, the second the second doctor who was medevac back was a very good friend of mine. Uh, well, he was med- that person is still with us. Yes, yeah, he was medevac okay. back from Monrovia after he acquired the infection from doing a, a delivery. Oh but, my word! You know, Natalie. I mean, you know, there are. I mean, were did people care in the early '80s that that gay men were dying mm-hmm. of HIV? And and I've heard people argue that people are going to start caring about COVID. That you see the numbers going up of people not wanting to go back without testing and tracing and isolating or a vaccine as more people they know get sick. And I think that that might be, in a horrible sense, what it takes to make people pay attention to this and. I think you can extrapolate from that. People will start to know pregnant women who might be at risk of getting this because, you know, that um, people are protective of pregnant women. So they are. I'm going to be I'm going to try to be hopeful that this will um, I, I will loop now into how I normally close the show, which I, you know, I like to try and pretend this is our final diagnosis. So my um, my experience after reading your article is about not only COVID-19, but also SARS and MERS and the work you did there, that pandemics seem to single out pregnant women in many ways with Zika and Ebola immediately coming to mind. And I think it's vital that as we move forward as a world and as a nation, that we include women in in trials at all possible, in vaccine trials and drug trials, because it's it's hard to want to protect pregnant women without also giving them access to the same care that non-pregnant people get. So um, that's going to be the challenge going forward. Would you like to offer also a final diagnosis for the show? I I couldn't agree with you more, Natalie. I mean, you know, women from an evolutionary perspective have a very unique role in society as propagators of the species. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you. And so, yes. uh, it's very important to obviously take care of pregnant women and fetuses. And in many countries, they are the most vulnerable of people in a society to mm-hmm. having bad outcomes. Right. Um, very often women in other countries aren't even allowed to make a decision by themselves to go to a physician. Uh, they're not they don't have the money to or they may not have access to it. Uh, COVID-19 now is starting to spread throughout Africa and we're expecting terrible, terrible things on that continent. There's countries that if they have ventilators, they may only have three or four in the entire nation. Right. So, yeah, we're going to just have to see how this plays out and do our very best. But I. I think it's so important that we all work together on this and disregard any political or uh, geographical considerations. And yeah, I, and maybe I think oh, those of us in healthcare have mm-hmm. successfully accomplished that. I think we are we are on one team, exchanging data and working with one another, despite differences in politics to try to get a handle on this pandemic. And I'd like to see that extend outside the healthcare community. 
Amen. What a great note to end on. Um, this is the longest I've ever talked to a guest. So I guess <laughs> we had a lot to cover. This is lovely. But thank you so much for joining me. I know you're very busy. Um, I hope this has been um, enjoyable for you and helpful as well. But um, we look forward to reading your future publications. And thank you for joining us on Deeper Levels. I appreciate it. Thank you, Natalie. I really appreciate being able to talk to you about it. Thank you. Yeah. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye, Natalie.